0: The decisions are better made at the edge of the network, to use the language. So, Mm -hmm. the further you are out, the closer you are to the actual situation or problem that you're trying to resolve, the better your knowledge and ability to resolve it will be. And if a decision has to come all the way back up the chain to headquarters where they're going to make a decision, then it can be slow and there's lots of approvals involved.
1: Welcome to the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. The podcast that brings you practical advice, lessons, and stories from senior leaders and thought leaders from around the world. The Strategy and Leadership Podcast is brought to you by SME Strategy, working with organizations around the world to create and implement their strategic plans. To learn more, visit SMEStrategy.net. And now, your host, Anthony Taylor.
2: Hey there folks, welcome to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor, and today I'm joined by Jay Goldman, who is the CEO and co-founder of Sensei Labs. Jay, how's it going today? It's great, Anthony, nice to be here, thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. So uh, why don't you tell people about Sensei Labs, what you do, what keeps you busy, and we'll get into it.
0: Yeah, we're an enterprise SaaS business. We are headquartered in Toronto, Canada, although we have customers all over the world. Our platform, Conductor, gets used by large enterprises and government agencies worldwide to help orchestrate their most critical initiatives, typically including things like transformations, post-merger integrations, ESG programs, uh, large procurement and supply chain optimizations, and that sort of thing. Conductor combines project portfolio management with KPI and benefits tracking and collaboration platform.
2: Cool. So we could take this a whole bunch of directions, but why would somebody need to orchestrate something versus just managing something?
0: Great question, and a question that we actually get quite frequently. So if you think about the challenges that companies have today, especially over the last two years of the pandemic, the current supply chain issues, inflation, the market changing conditions... Uh, all of those sorts of factors. It has led to an increased rate of change that everyone is dealing with, both in their personal lives and also as companies. And so the traditional approach to project management isn't keeping up until COVID hit, really a lot of companies, if not most of them, approached the question of transformation almost as a project. We're going to run a transformation project. It will have a finite term. And at the end of it, we will have transformed. And I think now, especially Transformation leaders and executives have started to understand that that is an older way of looking at the world, and you need to get away from this project-based mentality to really a state of ongoing transformation and evolution, which becomes a really strategic advantage when you can get to that space. That's what we call enterprise orchestration. And a lot of that is connected to moving away from the ways of working and the tools and platforms that we kind of use to create the problem. We come back often to this Einstein quote, you can't solve tomorrow's problems with the same thinking that created them, which he is uh, rumored to have said, I'm not sure it's an actual Einstein quote, but close enough, the spirit is there anyway. And so when you look at it through that lens, the traditional enterprise project management tools, the traditional structure of an enterprise project management office won't be the things that help an organization enter that constant state of evolution.
2: So what do you think are the key tenets for a successful transformation program versus project?
0: The first is to move away just from a fixed time mentality of we're going to run this for a period of time. And a lot of transformation projects really actually are software upgrade projects that end up getting called digital transformations. And in a lot of cases, and I I fully understand why an IT team might do this, but the only way that they can get budget approval to go ahead with some big upgrades or replacement of older legacy systems or whatever it might be, is to call it a transformation. If you don't call it a transformation, there's no funding. If you call it a transformation, all of a sudden there's funding. And so you get a lot of transformation projects that are really just IT business as usual sort of upgrades. We like to think of this as business as unusual instead. So you can't go into this the way that you always have. You can't run the same kind of project that you've always run. And so part of this is to think about, you might have a particular end state from a, let's say, financial perspective. We need to accomplish a set of things that are, and it's typically either going to save money or going to increase revenue if we kind of come down to the you know bottom line. And so you might say, we're going to run a transformation. And as part of this transformation, we have to uncover, let's say, $10 million in new revenue, and also $100 million in cost savings, if we're talking about a very large enterprise. That's a, a, an okay state to get to, because you can iterate towards that end state without defining the length of time of this program. Although, maybe as a public company, you might have to commit to those numbers to actually you know, deliver against them to the street. But Otherwise, you can sort of get to a state of, okay, we're going to keep iterating, we're going to keep making changes, we're going to constantly measure where we are, and then we're going to move in that direction, which will sound very familiar for anybody who's familiar with agile development. This is a very agile approach, borrowing heavily from the approach taken in agile uh, engineering teams, not not 100% lift and shift, but definitely borrowing more from that mentality and moving away from that project-based mentality, again, to that constant state of transformation.
2: Cool. So a difference how I heard it, not being involved in it all the time, but versus being action based and saying, we're going to do this for a year and a half, it's outcome. And then the outcome is preferred because that way it's the end state driving it. And you're not kind of bound by constraints of like, we need to do these 10 things, but we're going to keep going until it's done and make sure that we have, you know, really the outcomes realized, which is probably easier to make a business case versus just saying, Hey, we're going to, Add a new ERP or something like that.
0: Right, yeah. And I mean, sometimes you may have to do a little bit of both, right? Sometimes you do have to add a platform in order to unlock this. One of the other big differences is who makes those decisions. In a traditional PMO, it's very much top down hierarchical command and control. And what we're seeing increasingly, even in organizations that you might see in the military, for example, moving away from somewhat from that traditional top down hierarchy and the idea that the decisions are better made at the edge of the network to use the language so hmm. the further you are out the closer you are to the actual situation or problem that you're trying to resolve the better your knowledge and ability to resolve it will be and if a decision has to come all the way back up the chain to headquarters where they're going to make a decision then it can be slow and there's lots of approvals involved so or that you can push autonomy out to the edge of that network, the faster people are going to be able to make decisions and probably better decisions. They're better informed about the context that they're making them in. So we think a lot, when we, especially when we're talking about larger enterprises or even mid-sized organizations, the idea that you need an active governance model or an adaptive governance model, which is able to say there are certain restrictions around who should be able to make some types of decisions but we want to engage people as much as possible and trust them to make the right decisions within those constraints. So rather than a traditional view of governance, which says the PMO is in charge and has to make all of those decisions, an adaptive governance model or an active governance model looks at how can we give as much decision-making authority to people at the edge of the network, enable them to make decisions like how are we going to achieve this benefits number that we've signed up for, either in terms of an increase in revenue or a reduction in costs, and have the right structure in place to make sure that they're making decisions that fit within that governance envelope. Hmm.
2: I've got a couple of questions that I'm just waiting to ask, but how do people know when they need to make like that transformation? Like, How do we, they know when they need to take on a, a big project like that? Is it gut? Is it timing? Is it like what is the kind of... I don't know what the word I'm looking for. Switch when people say, "Okay, now's the time. Now we need to do this." Whatever.
0: Yeah, I I, I think impetus is the word I was looking for. Impetus. What's yeah? What's the impetus for that? So I think in some cases it's very obvious. So you are in a business maybe that's losing money and you realize that unless you make a significant change, the direction that you're headed in the trend line is just down to zero and that's not going to help anybody. You may be in a place where there's a new market entrant who has started to take a considerable amount of market share from you. And so without making a change again to either your own products or your business model or approach, you can also see where that trend line is headed to. There are external factors that might force some of that transformation, like, for example, a pandemic where all of a sudden we go from everyone is in an office to everyone is working from home. So, part of that is a technology change. We have to enable a hybrid model. But then, as you start to get into that, you realize a hybrid model isn't just people working from home. If executed properly, a hybrid model actually changes a lot of fundamental things about your business, like where do you hire from? If you have opened up the idea that people don't need to be located in your headquarters anymore and they could be located wherever there's great talent, then it opens up a completely different approach to hiring. And that brings in with it a whole bunch of changes to to process to people and to technology, kind of the three big areas that we look at. So there can be lots of sparks that trigger the need to undertake a transformation. Some of those transformations are more of a fixed-term sort of thing in the sense that it might be, okay, we are going to switch to Teams or Slack and enable people to work from home. And once we've done that, it's in place and we kind of don't have to continue. There's probably some change management after that, maybe some training and you know that kind of thing. But largely, that's sort of a, a one-time project. But it tends to create the need for future transformations. So once you switch to that, you start to think, well, now maybe everyone doesn't need to be in the office, but do we need to give people maybe better equipment for their home office or for work at home? Or do we need to start thinking about, do we need to change our office space around because people aren't coming in every day and maybe it's less useful if it's configured the way that it was? Or do we need to give up a bunch of that office space? Do we need to change our hiring policies and programs and start looking for talent in other places? Uh, A lot of companies have invested heavily in excuse me, a lot of companies have invested heavily in their employer brand, but they've done it in a very regionalized way. So they might be a top employer in the town that they're in or the city that they're in. If you start to expand that hiring sphere, All of a sudden, it requires you to transform how you think about employer brand, because now there are other regions where you might need to have a bigger presence. So I think that that's somewhat small seeming initial, maybe fixed length kind of transformation project of let's just put everybody onto Slack or Teams can have a domino effect that can end up changing a lot of things in an organization.
2: Yeah, which is like the bane of every project manager's existence is scope creep. And so how do you manage scope creep while also delivering the outcomes that you want? And yeah, exactly- well, and
0: I, and I think you, you can't do that in a waterfall project, which everybody knows. It's why all engineering teams have moved away from waterfall as an approach to managing that. And and the challenges you think of it as scope creep, you've already kind of lost the battle. Because it's not that it's scope creep, it's that you are into a constant state of evolution. So how do you adapt really at a more fundamental level to get away from the notion of something like scope creep and more toward the notion of the requirements are going to continue to change? We have to have a certain amount of agility, or we like the term nimble, we have to have a certain amount of nimbleness To be able to continuously adapt to that and transform as it's coming in. And part of that is actually getting away from the traditional structure of a PMO. So when we work on transformation projects with, uh, even with mid and large enterprise on a global basis, the most successful ones and and I'll give you a, a generally accepted industry number: is that somewhere around 70% of transformations fail. So that means only about 30% of them are successful. And you know, the only place I like to say that I've ever seen a 30% success rate being acceptable is baseball. If you are a baseball hitter who hits 300, you're doing pretty well. If you're, you know, any other industry in the world, that's not a great success rate. And so. When we work with our customers, the question for them is, how do you move from the 30% that fail to the or rather the 70% that fail to the 30% that succeed? What we've seen is a fairly consistent trend in the most successful organizations. They have created a transformation management office that is distinct from their enterprise project management office. And it's not necessarily the same people that now have different job titles. It tends to be people who have been successful in driving change in the organization who have been moved up. They may come from a PMO background. So that's not in any way a slight to the PMO, but it's a different set of skills. And it's not a centralized project management function anymore. It's more of an enablement function and a strategic function aligned to the realization of those business outcomes.
2: Yeah. So it's going to be careful you have PMI on your ass if you, uh, you know, but no, but I I think there's a couple here. So going back to that, um, that slippery slope of change, but really it's like just continuous enablement Like, Hey, we're not just making the change. We're making sure that because the speed of change is quick, we're putting all of the things and the tools in place. If we're doing it, Bit by bit, which makes sense, but you can't just stop and be like, "Okay, we're done," because it, it moves too fast now to be able to do that. Uh, I'm curious about um, failure, but I'm going to ask you, like, what constitutes a failure? And, mm. and, and I don't know if it's the ROI thing, but then the, the like the TMO, the like Transformation Management Office. You know, the work that we do is all it's all strategy, it's all leadership team development, it's getting the senior leadership teams. On board with that successful version of the future. And then through that, it's a transformation. If you're trying to do any significant change, whether that's processes, structures, system, culture, goals, you have to transform the organization to get to that next level, but there is no PMO. So it's the CEO who's leading that transformation because that's their charge typically with the SMEs that we work with. Uh, Thoughts or reflections on that before I ask you about failure?
0: Yeah, I think uh, I, I think you're right, and, and organization size comes into play here significantly. So if you're in more of an SME environment and you have a smaller team, you're unlikely to. have, If you have a TMO, it might be a single person, which is totally fine. You've you know designated somebody as leading that charge, but in order for them to be successful, there's a significant amount of of political capital in it and and cultural capital that that person needs to have. People need to want to make the changes that they want to put in place, or at least that person needs to be well-equipped for getting people to wanna to make that kind of change. And it gets away from more of a, as you said, it's it's more of a change management role in many ways than it is a project management role. Mm. As you get into a larger organization and you have a TMO, you where there's more than one person, and in fact, often actually quite a large group, depending on the scale of transformation, we do some transformations where we're working in Fortune 50 companies on a C-suite-led transformation, which has billions of dollars in benefits associated with it. At that scale, you have quite a large TMO who are now managing this. So that TMO will have project managers in it, and their role is to keep everything on track. But still, the leadership of that TMO needs to think more broadly than just what are, where are we in our get chart, and are we achieving the objectives on that timeline? They have to think about things like leadership development and change management, and they have to think about how do we get to that constant state of evolution so that if, the re- not even if, when the requirements change that we started off with, we're able to adapt to that and we're able to change with it. If you think about all the companies that went into the year 2020, and they had done all of their planning at the end of 2019, and they thought 2020 is going to be our year, we have this amazing transformation all lined up, we're going to kick it off in January. They got three months into that transformation before the entire thing was invalidated. And they had to go back and start from scratch because every fundamental assumption that they had made in designing that transformation changed in March. So and you know, it affected everybody around the world. So all of a sudden, everything you had put in place had to be modified. And, and luckily for all of us, very thankfully, we don't have a lot of giant black swan events like a global pandemic that comes along, or at least historically we haven't. Hopefully that remains true. So you don't have to worry that much about that sort of Planet wide fundamental change. But that's not to say that there aren't effects that are going to invalidate that. Like, even after the pandemic, we've come now into a time where supply chains around the world are completely disrupted. And so, we've spoken to lots of companies that had designed and built over the last few years some incredible either consumer or enterprise product that had microprocessors in it, because almost everything does. And their entire launch plan has been disrupted because they just can't get parts. For yeah. the thing that they were going to launch. So even their whole plan has become disrupted in a way that's very difficult to predict and to measure.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it's uh, yeah, I was gonna say there's, you know, hopefully not one major event, but you know, that as it's coming up, there seems to be more and more every day, but obviously not at that global scale. Um, so if we think of going back to that, like 30% succeed, 70% fail, um what constitutes failure? Is it That it's a budget ROI type thing? Is it like, you know, total value? Like what constitutes a failure in statistical terms? And then I guess a secondary question is how can people hover into that 30% versus being in the 70% pile as we finish up?
0: Yeah, I think it's pretty simplistic to look at it as a binary distinction of success or failure, because obviously it's it's got more nuance to it than that. And depending on what you consider to be success or failure, generally the numbers are built around that ROI question. Because you start off on a transformation and in any well-managed business, you've come up with some form of a business case as to why this transformation is worth undertaking. And that That business case typically will have some measure of ROI on it. It may not be a strictly financial one. So for example as we've been going through this period known as the Great Resignation, as people have been increasingly leaving their jobs and finding other places, you may find that retention is a driver of transformation in an organization. And retention is a little harder to measure in purely financial terms. It becomes measured in things like happiness if you're looking at a leading indicator of, of, of your team or you know how well you're doing in paying compared to market and that kind of thing. But I do think that the nuance is, In what constitutes failure? Because it's even once you've defined that ROI, is it a failure if you deliver 50% of the benefits that you had committed to at the beginning of the project? Probably, but is a failure at 80%? I mean, you still delivered 80% of the benefits. So, yeah, you didn't get all the way to the business case. And depending on how, close to the edge that business case was in ROI that may have made it a failure now but also the conditions of the market could have changed considerably if you had a three-year ROI period and the market completely changed a year and a half in then the original assumptions around that probably aren't true now how do you measure success or failure for the overall transformation so I think it's I think it's a bit difficult to put an exact number against something as complex as a transformation. I think also, a, a last thought on it, transformation is such a broad term that it depends what gets lumped into that bucket as to whether it's successful or not. So we do, for example, on the conductor platform, we work with lots of large enterprises that are doing post-merger integrations after they bought another company. And so... Those often get called transformations, but they're not really a transformation in the same way that a company that has undertaken a fundamental change of their business model or is maybe digitizing some of their services. And so that question of what constitutes transformation also factors quite significantly into what you would define as the success or failure bucket.
2: Yeah, I find it interesting, especially when we started our conversation about saying like, hey, is transformation an activity or a program over time? And then trying to like, hey, realize that benefit. And then how much of that goes into the people that are selling it? Because if you're overselling it to say, oh, yeah, it has this much upside and then, you know, you're saying okay great well then obviously the business case is clear we need to do it but then you underperform based on the overinflated upside then you're going to have a failure but it's still going to create um you know a potential big opportunity that even if it was a failure, it was necessary, because if you didn't do it, then you'd be so much further behind that I right. would create a, its own complexity, so you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. Um, but it's not really my space, so do I have the right kind of lens on it, or am I missing something?
0: Yeah, I, I would say so, yeah. Some of the transformations are life and death. If you're not successful at the transformation, the company is going to die anyway, and then you know that's obvious whether you succeeded or failed. Uh, and even a partial success might be enough to keep the company going. And that is still a success if it was a question of whether the company succeeded or didn't. Some of the transformations are really about developing future capability rather than defending against existing capability. In the past, we might have called that innovation. I think transformations probably superseded it in a way as a word that gets applied. But if you're out pushing the territory further forward, if you're developing new product lines or new revenue lines in an attempt to defend an existing territory by expanding the margins and moving out, then that's a different kind of transformation. And so what does it mean to be successful at that is quite different than what it might mean to be successful at changing the way that we deliver an existing service so we don't lose market share. (laughs)
2: <laughs> Just a simple, simple, simple thing to look at. Right. Well, you know, I, am sure we could talk about this for a really long time. I, I would love to. So maybe two questions as we finish, because I probably said two questions, a couple of questions ago. One, sure. uh, what should our leaders consider as they're going about these transformations? Cause I don't know if I fully got that one. And then where can people learn more about Sensei Labs and connect with you and, and learn more about the complexities and nuance of transformation and orchestration?
0: Yeah, I'll answer the second one first because it's easier. You can visit us at senseilabs.com, s-e-n-s-e-i labs.com. We also publish lots of things around social networks, so look at us, uh, look for us on LinkedIn and that kind of place. You can find me also on pretty much every social network as Jay Goldman, and so you know wherever your favorite social network is, look for me there. In terms of what leaders should think about, I think the key here is it's easy to fall into the trap of this is a project and I can run it like a project and that I have clearly articulated the requirements up front and that I will be successful if I meet those requirements. And that is probably true if you've got it down to a small enough granular level. So when we look at a big transformation program that might be open-ended and operational in nature it's still made up of projects that have to get executed and tasks within those projects so it's okay to think of this still as a collection of projects that can be finite in scope but you want to look at the overall piece as a much bigger open-ended piece and you want to think about how do we build the right skills and the right roles within the organizations so that we are equipped to be in that state of nimbleness and agility and adaptability to whatever may come along as we build towards this future state that we want to achieve.
2: Simple, right? Yeah, piece of cake. Jay, thank you so much for being here today. I like now my brain is like, but what about this? And what about this? And I think that there's a lot of uh, complexities to it. So finding a good partner to support you with that to make sure that you don't underscope, overscope, and make sure you can build the return is critical. So, Jay, thank you so much for the time today. Uh, It was just, it was really fun. So, folks. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, it. Yeah, absolutely. So, folks, thank you to my guest, Jay Goldman, who is this co founder and CEO of Sensei Labs. Uh, As you move forward with your project management, transformation, and adapting your business to the future. Uh, A lot of really great advice on how to make that successful, to fall into that 30%. I think realistic expectations of what you're going into, it's going to be critical and uh, it's not a one and done. So moving it forward is going to be critical to be successful in 2022 and beyond. So thanks so much for joining us on today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. My name is Anthony Taylor. I hope you're having an awesome day and I look forward to seeing you next time. Bye everyone.
1: Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Strategy and Leadership Podcast. If you haven't yet, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. We post twice a week, so you can count on us for your weekly source of content to help you grow and expand as a leader. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please consider giving us a review. We read every single one, and it helps us make a better show for you, the listener. Also, it helps more people find the show, which means we can help as many people as possible. We appreciate you listening and following along, and we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. And as Anthony says, until next time.